welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo, and this is Novel Conversations. This week's Novel Conversation is about the novel Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis. And I'll have that conversation with our Novel Conversations readers, Joan and Patrick Andrews. Joan, Patrick, welcome. Hi, Frank. Hello, Frank. Before we get started, let me read you a little introduction. Set in America at the beginning of the 20th century, Aerosmith is a story of Martin Aerosmith. And like America, Martin struggles with the sometimes contradictory concepts of doing well while doing good. How Martin Aerosmith reconciles worldly success in making money with his own desire to devote his life to scientific research forms the basis for our novel today, Aerosmith. So, Joan, let me ask, what did you think? You know, as I was reading it, I was thinking, I'm not so sure about this book. You're just following this guy through his life as a doctor. Sort of an itinerant doctor from town to town. But when it was all over, I began to understand it more. And then I went back to sort of look at how did these things come about? Who was this man that I just learned all about? And then I became fascinated with it. Well, good. Patrick, how about you? I enjoyed it throughout, I would say. It didn't take you to the end of the book? No. You know, for me, it's been interesting reading Aerosmith. I first read it when I was probably the same age as Martin Aerosmith when we first meet him, about 14, 15. My dad was a doctor, and I thought maybe I wanted to be a doctor someday, so he was supplying me with books about doctors. And I got to tell you, as much as I enjoyed this novel, I'm not sure it's a book about being a doctor. But it is definitely a book about the doctor's struggle between helping the patient or just progress in science. But for me, this novel is less about doctors and more about the practice of medicine. I think Sinclair Lewis had a lot that he wanted to say about the practice of medicine in America at the turn of the 20th century. A lot of the hucksterism, a lot of the fraud, and boy, he really gets it all out in this novel. I agree. In his previous novels, Main Street and Babbitt, his targets are sort of sitting ducks almost. Real estate agents and insurance men. Pretentious real estate agents and pretentious insurance men. And people that are in business. But here, Lewis has set as his target one of the professions, you know, the most admired of men, the town doctor. Right. We'll talk about it again as we get into the discussion. But while they're in medical school, some of their all-night talking sessions revolve around how to get patients, how to keep patients, how to charge patients more money, not about how we're going to take out those tonsils or how did you learn how to do that appendectomy. Right, which conflicts Martin even in medical school. Right, and one of their esteemed deans goes on to higher things, which is the medical furniture business. Yes, it's about furnishing your office, not about how to be a better doctor. And the other neat thing about this book is Sinclair Lewis very much tries to develop a human side for Martin, too. There's a few women, particularly his wife, that try and show us another side of Martin, and he wants to try and develop that side. But in the end, he is a scientist through and through. Now, wait, I'm going to stop you there, though, Joan. We've talked about meeting some women. We've talked about how he meets some of the scientists and doctors that he doesn't really have a lot of faith in. But I want to go back and I want to start our conversation with the young Martin Arrowsmith. Well, before we meet our 14-year-old Martin Aerosmith, we first meet his 14-year-old great-grandmother. Just a brief opening scene where his great-grandmother is driving a wagon over the wilds of Ohio on their way west. She's just buried her mother by the side of a river. Her father is laying very sick in the back of the wagon. She's supervising her younger brothers and sisters, and the father suggests that they turn south and head to Cincinnati, where there may be some family members that can help them out. And the 14 year old girl responds, nobody ain't going to take us in, she said. We're going on just as long as we can, going west. There's a whole lot of new things I aim to be seeing. So we get a little picture of the determination that Martin has in his lineage. 
But Joan, we don't actually see that determination in the 14-year-old Martin Arrowsmith that we meet. Well, actually we do. He's 14 years old and it says by sheer brass and obstinacy, he had become the unofficial, also decidedly unpaid, assistant to the doc. And this was the doctor of the town. Doc Vickerson was his name. And Martin Aerosmith knew at this age that he wanted to be a doctor. Now, when you say the phrase town doctor or country doctor, an image immediately comes to mind of the kindly old gent traveling by horse carriage from farm to farm taking care of his patients. That's not quite the portrait that Sinclair Lewis paints for us, is it? No. This was a grizzled old man who was disillusioned with his life as a doctor. That's right. Not only was he the town doctor, he was also probably the town drunk. And Martin knew this, but yet Martin wanted to be something like this man. Well, he must have, because literally you turn the page and now Martin is a 21-year-old junior in college determined to go to medical school. He's 21 years old. It's 1904. There's a brief mention that his parents are both dead. He's been left a little bit of money enough to pay for his college and his medical training. Martin seems to be a bright student, shy. But Martin's already become aware of the great influence in his life. And who is that? Professor Max Gottlieb. Now, this professor was a recluse at the University of Winnemac. He was a German Jew. He basically lived in his laboratory. And people knew more of him than they actually knew about him. But people talked about him all the time, somewhat scornfully and somewhat reverentially. Martin definitely took the reverential line. What was it that Professor Gottlieb did that Martin Arrowsmith wanted to follow in his footsteps? Well, he was a professor of bacteriology. He had written sort of the standard work. And because of his reclusive nature and his devotion to his work, as opposed to trying to be a popular professor or hosting dinners for students, that appeals to Martin. This is a pure scientist. This man lives for his lab. All right, so Martin Arrowsmith goes to medical school. He wants to be a disciple of Max Gottlieb. How did that work out? Well, of course, his first day in medical school, he goes over to Professor Gottlieb's office wanting to take his bacteriology course with him. And Gottlieb is very dismissive of him, tells him he's got to come back the next year after he's had some other courses. But as resolved as Martin is to take the courses and learn what he needs to learn in order to get to Max Gottlieb's class, it's not all work at this university, is it? No, it's not. Martin ends up joining a medical fraternity and living in the frat house. And frat house is a good word because we really meet some frat house characters. I really felt like this was a precursor to Animal House. Right. They elect the religious guy to be their head so that then when they're out drinking late at night, the dean figures, well, how bad can this fraternity be? Look at who they've got as their leader. <laughs> right. And the fraternity is made up of a bunch of other characters. Now, we do meet a lot of the characters in this fraternity, but two of the men in the fraternity are important to Martin Arrowsmith and to the novel Arrowsmith. Right, there's Cliff Clawson, who becomes Martin's closest friend from his college days. Cliff is the class clown. A bit of a buffoon. Right. He enjoys his drinking, his poker, not much evidence of him studying much. He enjoys putting firecrackers in cadavers. <laughs> right, he's the prankster. And then there's Angus Doerr. Angus is a bright student. Technically, he's perfect. Martin remarks that he seems to lack a little bit of imagination. He's also the rich kid. Right, and he seems to know exactly what it is he wants. When he gets out of medical school, he plans on a career in a prominent surgical partnership in Chicago. So he's sort of Martin's academic rival. Cliff and Angus are either sides of Martin's psyche. 
Right. It's Angus Dewar who introduces him to all the things that Martin thinks he wants from society. He goes to plays. He knows the right poetry to read. He knows what paintings should be on a wall. And Cliff Clausen introduces Martin to all the speakeasies in town and all the places where perhaps you might get a chuckle and a hug from a girl. Right. And of course, there is another character from college we meet, and that would be Martin's girlfriend, Madeline Fox. She's a graduate student in literature, I believe. Right. I think Sinclair Lewis uses his capital letters and says she's read all the right books. Exactly. But Martin does become engaged to Madeline. So, Joan, Martin has a pretty good first year at medical school. Mm-hmm. But now he's back from summer vacation, ready to start his second year. And this will be even a better year for him. It sure will, because Professor Max Gottlieb has accepted Martin as his assistant. But being his assistant's not really a very glamorous job. It's mostly scut work, cleaning test tubes, running minor experiments, preparing media. And Martin is prepared for that, and he loves every minute of it. It's the honor of being found worthy by Professor Gottlieb, I think, that Martin values. And it's while he's doing some of the scut work for Dr. Gottlieb that he meets another interesting person. This is when he meets Leora. Who's Leora? Leora is a woman that Martin meets when he is sent to the big city Zenith and the hospital there to get a particular culture for Gottlieb's laboratory. And while there... Don't tell me. She's a nurse, isn't she? Nurse in training. Right, in training. And Martin walks through the halls acting like a doctor. And he's actually only a doctor in training. Correct. And he actually acts kind of haughty to her. She's rude back, saying, who are you to talk to me this way? Patrick, he stays upset for a very long time. I think if I recall, about three or four minutes. Right. He's obviously captivated by this girl. And before he leaves the hospital, he finds her again. And he sort of fesses up that he's not really Dr. Aerosmith, but he's just a doctor in training. And she immediately apologizes for how rude she was. And they just sort of click. There's just something about her naturalness that he enjoys. And before he knows it, they're going out to dinner. And then the next thing we know is he's engaged to her, too. But wait a minute. I thought he was already engaged to Madeline Fox. Right. Right. So his resolution to the problem is he invites Madeline to come to lunch with him to meet Leora. Right. He actually says, and they can fight it out between them, who will get him. Oh, my. This isn't going to end well. Actually, to Martin's luck, it ends just fine. Madeline gets up, walks away, turns back, touches Leora's shoulder, and says, Dear, I'm sorry for you. You've got quite a job. You poor baby. And Madeline Fox is actually never heard from again in our novel, is she? Nope. So, Patrick, he got engaged to Leora in about three days. How many days till they get married? Well, there's a little problem there. Leora is called back home to North Dakota, where she's from, to nurse her ailing mother. And that coincides, unfortunately, with the departure of his best friend, really, Cliff Clausen. Why did Cliff leave medical school? Well, Cliff's clowning has caught up with him, and one prank has sort of gone over the top, and Cliff's been forced to leave the medical school before he's kicked out. So as a result, Martin is sort of now alone at school. Right, his best friend and his best girl are both gone. Right, and he's not in the fraternity anymore, and he sort of goes into a tailspin, starts drinking more, staying out. His work and his studies begin to suffer. And Joan, this really causes a problem with him and Professor Gottlieb. Because as you can imagine, Max Gottlieb is a perfectionist. If he asks you to go get him some female rabbits and you come back with male rabbits, that's not a little problem he can overlook. And when Martin does exactly that, Gottlieb does not overlook it. No, he takes that as a sign that Martin's completely uninterested in his work and might as well leave. And Martin does leave. But he's not kicked out of the school. He essentially takes a leave of absence. Right. He goes on to live a hobo existence for a couple of months, riding the trains, washing dishes, not knowing what he's going to do with his life. 
but he ends up in Wheatsylvania, Leora's hometown. And she is glad to see him. Yeah, but not everyone's glad to see him. In the family, not so much. Not at all. Well, he's not one of the 372 people of the town, so why would they like him? The father doesn't say much, the mother doesn't say much, but she's got a brother who says plenty. Bert is his name. He works in the small bank which the family owns. It seems that the family owns almost half the town. They own a granary, they own a bank, they own a general store, and of course the son Bert is the vice president of all these businesses. Exactly, and he picks up immediately on the fact that Martin is out of school during the school year. But Leora thinks Martin's just fine. And that's really all Martin cares about. Right. So what happens with Leora and Martin while they're in Wheatsylvania, Dakota? They elope. They get on a train one morning, they come back that night, husband and wife. And I'm sure this really sets well with the mom, the dad, and big brother. The family decides that he's going to go back to school, that they are not going to live as man and wife, even on their wedding night. And the brother and the father take turns guarding <laughs> the hallway between their bedrooms. I bet Martin's going to go back to school and finish that two-year course in about six months. <laughs> <laughs> so reluctantly leaving Leora behind, Martin returns to the university and is accepted back into the medical school. They both agreed to this crazy plan, but here's where we see a flash of that famous Aerosmith steel resolve and backbone. Martin realizes that he is not going to be able to live without Leora for two years, so he returns at the next break to Wheatsylvania. He and Leora tell the family that she is moving in with him back at school and that the family will send her some money to help support her or they'll never see their daughter again. And the family does break down and accepts this. Yes, and there's a touching moment when Martin and Leora are on the train heading back to Zenith. He looks out the window and he sees her father standing there genuinely sad that his daughter is leaving and something clicks in Martin and he realizes we'll be back to Wheatsylvania. So now the whirlwind begins. He's got two years of school to finish and he's got about six months to do it. Right, and they live the next couple of years as a pretty romantic young married couple. He finishes medical school, he gets an internship, they live in small apartment after small apartment, and they're happy with each other. He actually has a pretty good internship. Right, he has an internship at the Zenith Hospital. He begins to enjoy his position as sort of the heroic young doctor, racing around town, delivering babies in floods, and saving firemen. These are his first tastes of success as a doctor. Right, but he never reconciled with Dr. Gottlieb. He has sort of left the laboratory and the pure science that he enjoyed with him behind as he was swept up in this practical world of medicine. He's becoming the kind of doctor that he and Gottlieb disdained. Yes, but he thinks that he's growing up. He has a wife now. This is a practical way of living the scientist's life. And he enjoys being a successful intern. But he has not completely forgotten about Gottlieb. That's right. In fact, before he ends his internship, he and Leora run into him in the street. Right. Martin and Gottlieb acknowledge each other, but nothing more than that. And meanwhile, Leora, who has not even been introduced to this man really, seems to recognize sort of the greatness of Gottlieb. She's very impressed by him. There's a couple of great lines where she talks about him. She says to Martin, he's the greatest man I've ever seen. I don't know how I know, but he is. That's the first man I've ever laid eyes on that I'd leave you for if he wanted me. Oh, Martin, he looks so wretched. I wanted to cry. But the sad part about it is they've already walked past Gottlieb. They did not reignite a relationship. The moment's passed. And actually, the two of them are going to head to Wheatsylvania. But Patrick, Sinclair Lewis takes this moment to now give us a little bit of backstory on Max Gottlieb. We get a brief look at Gottlieb's childhood in Germany, his scientific education throughout Europe, really. 
But all his fame was really in Europe. Since he's been in America, he's worked at a couple of schools like the University of Winnemac, but he has not had the prestige or the honor that he once had in Europe. Right. He's still among a small circle of international scientists. He's well-known and well-respected. But because his work is theoretical, laboratory-based, it doesn't have the public appeal of more practical science. The people who work with him and around him do not recognize his genius or his brilliance. And similarly, he doesn't seem to recognize how the real world works, which is what brings about his downfall at Winnemac. He proposes a new school of medical science. With no patients. Right. This is going to be purely research. And he suggests that the dean step down from his position and allow Gottlieb to take over this new school, thinking this is a very reasonable and rational request. And as you can imagine, the dean of the medical school, Dr. Silva, isn't going to step down for Gottlieb. The end result of all this is Gottlieb is fired. And there's really nothing he can do. He can't even get a job teaching high school chemistry. And this is the point that Martin and Lior run into Max Gottlieb on the street. He was really depressed, not only because he could not find any work, but his wife was going through a terrible sickness. Sinclair Lewis writes, whether or not he loved her, whether he was capable of ordinary domestic affection, could not be discovered. It's a little sad. And it's why Martin's story is so interesting, because Martin is trying to develop both sides of his personality. But this isn't the end for Professor Gottlieb. He does actually take a job. Well, he sort of prostitutes himself to one of the pharmaceutical houses. He lasts about a year there before he lands a position with the McGurk Institute, supposedly a purely research-oriented institute where he'll be allowed to do his own experiments. Right. At the pharmaceutical house, all they were interested in is, how can we market your next experiment? How soon can we get something on the market so we can make money? He then takes this job at the McGurk Institute, believing he can do all the research he wants, and they don't even care if there's ever any results. Right. And then Sinclair Lewis basically leaves him in New York, and we rejoin Martin and Leora in Wheatsylvania. Leora's hometown, and Martin was going to set up a practice. And things just don't go very well. He has a couple successes, but mostly he has failures. Right. Martin lacks the personal skills necessary to be a kindly country doctor. He really never got that bedside 101. Right. And his biggest success seems to be in halting an outbreak of a cattle disease. So he just doesn't have the people skills. But he did save all those cows. Unfortunately, to the consternation of the veterinarians who thought he was honing in on their business and the doctors who thought it was beneath them to work with cattle. And plus, they're living in Wheatsylvania, so they're under the thumb of Leora's family. That's a heavy thumb. Yes, it is. Quickly, they realize they've got to move on from Wheatsylvania. And they do. Within about two or three years, they leave Wheatsylvania and they move to a bigger city, Nautilus, in Iowa. He's going to be the assistant director of public health, a job where he thinks he'll get to do more research. Doesn't quite work out that way, though, does it, Patrick? No, not exactly. He meets his boss, the director, Dr. Pickerbaugh. He's a combination of a businessman, a huckster, a sloganeer, an ad man, a booster and a boaster who happens to have a medical degree. That's exactly what he was. And he doesn't really practice medicine. His principal claim to fame is coming up with these bad jingles and poems designed to encourage cleanliness and hygiene among the great unwashed masses of Nautilus. And he has a practice, which even harkens to today, of every week is a special week, childbirth week, only three cigars a day week, (laughs) glad-handing week, more babies week, Right. open your windows parade. He's trying to promote public health, but he's doing it from the PR side and not from the medical side. He figures Martin will do the medical work. 
And Martin thought, okay, I'll do the research. But he never got a chance to do the research. His downfall in Nautilus really comes with the elevation of Dr. Pickerbaugh. The doctor is elected to Congress, and Martin takes over the job as the director of public health. It is an administrative position at which Martin is completely unsuited. He pretty much gets out of town before they run him out of town. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. And it's also a Nautilus that we really get a sense of what Leora's life with Martin is going to be. They do have a slightly nicer house, and so they're very happy about that. And then Martin goes to work and works as much as he possibly can, even when he's not very good at some of it. And Leora is okay with that. However, Leora is also aware that when Martin's out working, there are other women out there impressed with Martin. In Nautilus, it's a 19-year-old silly girl. Dr. Pickerbaugh's daughter. Right. And Martin's head is turned a little bit, and nothing really happens. Leora calls him on it, and the two of them stay together. That's right. Leora is aware of Martin's weaknesses, but she knows that she's got him. He's not really going anywhere. It was also while they were in Nautilus that they did have some great times, but also a great tragedy. Leora actually gets pregnant and miscarries, and this eats Martin alive. Very different than how Max Gottlieb was with his wife when she was ill. They decide to leave Nautilus. He's going to go to Chicago and try something completely different. Right. Martin says, I never knew I could be so badly licked. I never want to see a laboratory or a public health office again. I'm done with everything but making money. Or so he thought. Right. He's going to go practice with an old college friend, Angus Dewar, in his private practice. Angus is part of a prestigious practice in Chicago, and Martin lands a job there as a staff pathologist. And they start to live a decent, civilized life in Chicago. He's actually making a little bit of money finally. He and Leora have found a not close circle of friends, but certainly a circle of people that they can do things with. Mm-hmm. And he's started to get back into his laboratory research. Which he thought he was done with. Right. But he's not going to be happy being one of these doctors who's more concerned with the couch in his waiting room or where he can find the next tonsils to remove. And actually, he has a minor success with his research and publishes a paper, which is well-received. It actually comes to the attention of Max Gottlieb back at the McGurk Institute in New York. That's right. Martin had taken the liberty of sending Dr. Gottlieb a reprint of his article. And he gets a response from Dr. Gottlieb, which essentially says, when are you coming to the McGurk Institute? And so? And so, Leora says, we're going to love New York. Right. And it's interesting to note that it's Leora that encourages him in this direction. He's thinking that it's time for him to come to Chicago and be a real doctor and help her work her way up in society. And she reminds him that she doesn't care about that. She reminds him of who he was when she first met him. You had some dreams. I want you to have those dreams. And she also reminds him, didn't that Professor Gottlieb of yours call the people who live the life we're leading now the men of measured merriment? And the two of them realize that they don't want to become what they are becoming. And they're off to New York, finally to be reunited with his Professor Gottlieb. Correct. Finally, Martin Arrowsmith can putter around his lab, can mess around with his test tubes, grow things on his media, and everyone's going to leave him alone. 
Well, not quite. The director of the institute, Dr. Tubbs, and his assistant, director, Dr. Holabird, there's just a little bit of the pickerbaugh quality in them. In fact, both of those professors like to brag about how much research they like to do. Right, and what sacrifices they make to their science by having to have these administrative and executive responsibilities. And yet Martin immediately notices that their lab tables are dusty and unused. But Martin is okay with someone else doing the administrative work. As long as he and Professor Gottlieb are left to their lab work, they'll be fine. And for a while, that's exactly what happens. Until, of course, Martin has a success in the lab. Martin comes up with what he calls the X factor. It ends up being called a phage that is killing bacteria in the lab. And he knows, Gottlieb knows, eventually everybody knows, this could cure everything from influenza to the plague. That's right. But Aerosmith and Gottlieb want to do some experimenting with this new X factor. They've got at least three or four years of experiments planned to test exactly how this thing works. Right. They're scientists. You can't be sure enough. Unfortunately, two things intervene, McGurk and a real plague. Dr. Tubbs, the director, wants to rush Martin's discovery into publication. Publication and production. Right, with Dr. Tubbs as the co-author and, of course, bring repute to the Institute and himself. And save lives. Look, if you've got this, get it out there, give it a shot. Right, he's not being entirely selfish in that respect. But the Gottlieb-Arrowsmith argument is, we don't even really know what we've got yet. We don't know how well it'll work. We don't know what it'll work on. You need to give us some more time. Before long, that argument is mooted because a scientist in France happens upon very much the same X factor and publishes a paper ahead of Martin's. So Martin's discovery is now diminished. And Martin even adopts the Frenchman's name for this. It's no longer his X factor. It's now this phage. But being the scientist that Martin is, now the pressure's off him again, and he can go back to the lab and really discover what this is. But as I hinted a little bit earlier, real life intervenes in the laboratory. Right. The bubonic plague has broken out in a small island in the Caribbean, and the McGurk Institute sees this as a great opportunity for them to put Martin's discovery to practical use and possibly more fame for the Institute. And Gottlieb and Martin see this as a chance to do a real-life experiment. They needed a controlled population. Gottlieb encouraged Martin to go down to the Caribbean island and give half the people the injection and see if this will work. Because as cruel as that might sound for the people who don't get the injection, there are plagues all over the world. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people that might be saved if they know that this can really work. Sure, they've never actually tested this in real life. They don't know if you need one shot, three shots, a shot every three hours. How strong do we make the phage? But experimenting with real lives... Doesn't go over well with a lot of other people. And so when they get to this Caribbean island, again, he has some successes, but he also has some failures. Martin goes down with Leora. Leora insists on coming along, although Martin would rather that she didn't because of the danger. And Gustav Sandelis joins them. Now, we haven't talked about him before, but this is a character introduced to us earlier. Just briefly. He is a scientist whom Martin has admired from afar, has actually met once. This man has experience dealing with tropic diseases with worldwide plagues. But he's not really looking at this as an experiment. He wants to go down there and he's going to give everybody this shot. Right. He's just about killing the plague and killing the rats that carry the plague. As many lives as he can save, that's what he wants to do. Right. So Martin and Leora and Gustav arrive in the quarantined island of St. Hubert. 
And here, Martin really comes face to face with the difficulty of trying to employ his control test. There are hundreds and thousands of people dying on a daily basis. It's one thing to be a dispassionate scientist in a laboratory when you're faced with, as you say, thousands of people dying. It's another story. He surrenders somewhat, and he starts administering the phage or the vaccine to everyone in the main town on this island. But he does have an opportunity on the other side of the island where there's a smaller population. There's a doctor over there who believes with Martin the value of having this control test. So Martin takes that opportunity and goes to the other side of the island. Leaving Leora behind in the big city because she's in a safe place there and he thinks it's better for her to be there. The vaccine seems to be working all over the island. But, of course, it's important to keep meticulous records so that you can prove why something worked, not just that it happened to work after you gave it to them. But, Joan, it's right in the middle of his greatest success that Martin then has his greatest tragedy. Right. As he's in this town across the island conducting his tests... And saving villagers... Leora becomes infected with the plague and dies alone. And, of course, Martin is devastated. Right, and he goes into a bit of a tailspin, begins drinking. And except for that one small town, he basically gives up on the experiment completely, opens up the doors, and inoculates everyone that wants it. Which, of course, makes him a hero to the islanders and to the world. But, of course, to himself and to Max Gottlieb, he realizes he's betrayed science. And he betrayed Leora, because... While he was on the other side of the island, there was a young, rich, beautiful, widowed woman who was taking some interest in Martin. So he spent a little more time with her than he should. So Patrick, this is the Martin Arrowsmith that returns to New York. His wife is dead, his experiment somewhat of a success, somewhat of a failure, and he has to face Professor Gottlieb and the McGurk Institute. At McGurk and to the rest of the world, Martin is a hero. It is only to himself and to Gottlieb and to his other new friend, Terry Wickett, that he knows he's been disloyal. Who's Terry Wickett? Terry Wickett is a colleague at the McGurk Institute, and he's just into his research. He's rude and obnoxious, and he is now Martin's best friend. Well, now, how is Martin Arrowsmith going to reconcile this failure and this success? Well, the conflict continues in Martin's head. He works at the McGurk Institute, and he ends up marrying the widowed woman from down on the island who's back in New York as well. Now, this is the kind of woman that they used to make fun of. Oh, she was definitely a woman of measured merriment. Joyce Lanyon. Joyce is very high in New York society. Worth millions. Lewis draws a great contrast between Joyce and Leora. While Leora was content to sit for hours in the same room with Martin while he did his research, Joyce, on the other hand, expected him to remember her birthday, her taste in wine, her liking for flowers, and that she objected to viewing the process of shaving. Leora enjoyed the small staterooms on the ship down to the Caribbean because it meant she could be closer to Martin. While Joyce wanted her own bedroom in their home and insisted that Martin knock before entering and that he admire her hats. I think today we'd use the term high maintenance. Exactly. I think Martin would have used that term. Even then? (laughs) Right. And I think Martin got involved with Joyce because Martin never fully resolved this part of his manhood. He knew that women were somehow important, but still didn't appreciate how Leora was especially suited for him. But let's give Joyce her due. She tries. She makes several attempts. In fact, she makes an awesome attempt and builds him an entire laboratory in the barn next to the main house. Right, and invites friends over to sit and watch him. He sort of becomes an exhibit at the zoo where after the dinner parties, they all come into his laboratory and they say, okay, now do some science for us. Let's see you do something with that (laughs) test tube. Right. It's a little crazy. Finally, Martin realizes this is not the life he's suited for. 
And it's really not the life Joyce is suited for. Right. And even the fact that Joyce actually bears Martin a son doesn't really affect their relationship much. No, Martin says, I'm going to go do my research in Vermont, and maybe in 20 years my son will join me up here. But I've got to do this. Right. So when we leave Martin, he's living the life of a researcher. So he's happy. After 460 pages, he's finally the scientist he wants to be? Yes. In fact, the closing lines of the book, speaking to Terry Wickett, he says, I feel as if I were really beginning to work now. We'll plug along on it for two or three years, and maybe we'll get something permanent, and probably we'll fail. But that's okay with Martin as long as he's doing what he wants to do. Right. And so, with the end of our novel, we leave Martin Arrowsmith and Terry Wickett in Vermont doing their own research. Okay, Joan, Patrick, I know there's a lot in this book that we didn't get a chance to get to. So this is your opportunity now to give us some of those moments or to give us some of those quotes that we haven't had a chance to talk about. Joan, I know you have something you wanted to read. I do. Very, very early in the book, when we've just heard about Professor Max Gottlieb, Martin is just a junior in college, and he's discussing the elusive Max Gottlieb with his English professor. And this sort of begins the discussion in the whole book about the value of research versus anything else in the world. The English professor says, With a man like Gottlieb, I'm prepared to believe that he knows all about material forces. But what astounds me is that such a man can be blind to the vital force that creates all others. He says that knowledge is worthless until it is proven by rows of figures. Well, when one of you scientific sharks can take the genius of a Ben Johnson and measure it with a yardstick, then I'll admit that we literary chaps, with our doubtless absurd belief in beauty and loyalty and the world of dreams, are off on the wrong track. And I'm going to go with him. I think there's a lot to be learned from the arts without having to measure them. I hope so. (laughs) Patrick, do you have something? I do. I think it would be difficult not to have a favorite passage that didn't include some of Lewis's satire on the medical profession. In this passage, we're getting a look at one of Martin's medical school professors talking about the important things in medicine. Knowledge is the greatest thing in the medical world, but it's no good whatever unless you can sell it. And to do this, you must first impress your personality on the people who have the dollars. Whether a patient is new or an old friend, you must always use salesmanship on him. Explain to him, also to his stricken and anxious family the hard work and the thought you're giving to his case, and so make him feel that the good you have done him or intend to do him is even greater than the fee you plan to charge. I like that. I'm glad you picked that passage because for me, this book really is about Sinclair Lewis's cynicism of the medical profession. And in fact, the quotes that I want to read fall right into that line. We're introduced to a doctor who actually works for a furniture company. He's got his MD degree, but he's the president of the New Idea Medical Instrument and Furniture Company of Jersey City. And he's advising these doctors-to-be at the medical school, forget about what you're learning. What's most important is what's in your office. And he tells them there's actually two schools of thought on decorating your office. There's the tapestry school and the aseptic school. And the quote continues, Both of them have their merits. The tapestry school claims that luxurious chairs for waiting patients, handsome hand-painted pictures, a bookcase jammed with the world's best literature and expensively bound sets, produce an impression of that opulence which can only come from sheer ability and knowledge. The aseptic school, on the other hand, maintains that what a patient wants is the appearance of scrupulous hygiene, which can only be produced by furnishing the outer waiting room as well as the inner offices in white-painted chairs and tables, with merely a Japanese print against the gray wall. (laughs) I really do like the sarcasm of Sinclair Lewis. And with that, I think I'm going to stop here and take our final break. Joan, Patrick, I want to thank you both for coming in and having a conversation with me about Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks, Frank. I did. Thanks, Frank.
Joining me now for EndNotes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Ted, hello. Hello. Ted, I understand you found Dr. Martin Arrowsmith. Yes, the very famous and very infamous science writer, Paul de Cruyff. Very famous? I've never heard of him. You haven't, and yet you may have even read some of his work if you took any sort of a science class. His most famous work, which was one of his earliest ones, came out in 1926, right after Aerosmith, and that was called Microbe Hunters. And so far, it's been through 18 different editions. Well, how does he become our Martin Aerosmith? The publisher, Harcourt Brace, arranged for him to work directly with Sinclair Lewis. This was a letter dated February 13th, 1923, to their publisher, Harcourt Brace. It gives me joy to inform you that de Cruyff is perfection. He has not only an astonishing grasp of scientific detail, he has a philosophy behind it and the imagination of a fiction writer. He loves work. When I'm compiling notes into a coherent whole, de Cruyff is preparing more data, clear, sound, and just the stuff for dramatic purposes. He created all the characters. He created the general storyline. He provided the scientific details, and the work later would be considered more than half his. What do you mean he created the characters? These were all people from the Rockefeller Institute where de Cruyff had worked. Ted, I know you're a writer yourself. This is a pretty unusual situation. What's unusual is that he went uncredited. Normally, you do a joint byline. But even though this was uncredited in the novel, Sinclair Lewis gave Paul de Cruyff a lot of credit. Only to the publisher. When he won the Pulitzer Prize, for example, he unilaterally turned it down when de Cruyff wanted it and had more than half an interest in that book. Do you think he turned it down because he felt he hadn't quite written all this book? That's what I suspect. Ted, it's because of interesting facts like this that I love having you come in for our EndNotes segment. And with that, I'm going to end today's conversation on the novel, Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis. Ted, thanks for coming in. You're welcome. And I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Joan and Patrick Andrews, for having this conversation with me. Until next week, I'm Frank Lavallo. I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Novel Conversations is a production of the Front Porch People. Listen to more great conversations at thefrontporchpeople.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Anne Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.